0: Hello and welcome to the Bedrosian Center's book club podcast, an audio book club where we read and discuss a book every month, sometimes two. We read new and classic works, fiction and non through a lens of governance to really get at what it means to participate in our communities today. I am Aubrey Hicks, executive director of the Bedrosian Center, and you might hear one of my cats meowing behind us as we move along today. Uh, Today we're talking about one of my favorite books of all time. It's uh, October, so we're coming to a scary, spooky, ghosty, witchy story. This is possibly one of those things, all of them or none of them. <laughs> we're discussing House of Leaves by Mark Z. Danielski. Ostensibly, it's a story of a lost dude who finds a manuscript written by a dead man named Zapano. And this manuscript is a critique of a film called The Navidson Record. And it's a documentary about a family who, uh, after moving to Virginia, discovers that their house is bigger on the inside. Not only that, but it's a constantly changing labyrinth, and there might even be a monster. It's a story within a story within a story. It's an experimental group of stories, it's a meta narrative, it's experimental, it's sign and icon and it's not for everybody but uh whoever it is for (laughs) it's definitely for me but uh before i introduce my ghost my guests i want um my ghost i want to make sure that you know that we're going to talk about the book and there's going to be spoilers so if you're okay with that go ahead keep keep listening if not you know i recommend you read the book it's um it's an amazing amazing experience i recommend the prebound version Uh, Content warning, Uh, there's some animal cruelty, uh, violence of all kinds, sexual violence, physical violence, Um, there's drugs, there's uh, some scary stuff, uh, and a whole lot of stairs. So beware of our October read, House of Leaves. With me to talk about the book are several amazing folks who've given up a lot of their time to read this massive text. Thank you to all of you, my guests, for joining us. I know this was, um, uh, for those of you who have not read the book, it's a huge, huge undertaking. So um, I really appreciate you volunteering your time and um, being willing to talk about this book with me. Um, So I want to introduce all of our guests to our listeners. I'm going to start with uh, Xenia. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: Um, I am from New York, just moved to L.A. um, about a year and a half ago, and um, I was just telling somebody the other week, one thing I love about L.A. is that it seems to be a spatial representation of everybody's subconscious. I I love how... Theory it is just in its day to day. I am a I am a writer. I am a, a big reader. I love books. I love experimental fiction. So this was an exciting uh, book for me to join you guys to talk about, and I'm looking forward to
0: it. Excellent, excellent. Uh, next is Stacy. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, and uh, welcome back.
2: Oh, thank you. Um, I, I've been on a little bit of leave, so this is my first day back in the office since March of 2022, or 2020, and my first day back from my leave. Uh, my name is Stacey Patterson. I work here at USC in the School of Cinematic Arts. I'm a program manager for the Division of Media, Arts, and Arts.
0: And Lisa? Hello, I'm Lisa Schweitzer,
3: and I'm a professor in the Department of Urban Planning and Spatial Analysis and Gender and Sexuality Studies here at USC.
0: Thank you. And uh, Jen. Jen, can you tell our listeners about uh, yourself? Hi, everybody. I'm Jen Bravo. I
4: um, work here in Los Angeles in the climate resilience space, but I'm a big reader and an aspiring writer, and it's always a pleasure to be on this podcast with Aubrey and all the other wonderful guests, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today.
0: Excellent. Um, It's hard for me to know where to start when talking about House of Leaves. So, um, I guess I'm going to start with just the physical book. Uh, When you picked it up and started looking through it, um, I think you probably realized pretty quickly that there could be a multiple multiple ways to attack reading the book. Um, how did you go about reading the book?
4: <laughs> how did you go about reading
0: it? Um,
4: well, I can I, start yeah. I can start and say that I started trying to read it like a regular novel mm-hmm. and then quickly realized that that wasn't quite going to work for a book like this and started tracking different places at which I stopped and started different storylines with various bookmarks throughout so that I could try to keep a handle on all of the nested stories that are happening via the footnotes and the and the main the main text of the book.
0: I actually had a friend who when I recommended it read it without reading any of the footnotes. Did they go back and read any of the footnotes after? I don't know. I mean, I think they had a very different experience of the book.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think you could actually do that.
0: Yeah.
1: I um I I started it. I, you know, I I didn't really know much about it going into it, so I opened it up and I jumped right in and um I was immediately met with the challenge and I didn't really want to do a lot of research while I was reading it. Like I didn't want to kind of get other things in my head, but, um, probably about 200 pages. in, I was like, okay, I I need help. (laughs) (laughs) So I got on the internet and I just did some poking around and I got a a couple of suggestions as to, you know, what you can prioritize and, you know, what, um, what you can, you know, skip over if you want to do that. So that helped a little bit. (laughs) Um, but that, also changed my experience of seeing the the book as a whole in a way that I'm sure we'll get back to
0: later. So, Stacey, when you and I talked earlier, that was your suggested question.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like how in the world do people get through this? Um, And I look forward to hearing those of you um, who've read it before, how you approach this, you know, after other times. But I will say that Um, so Aubrey knows I don't typically read anything, uh, that's too scary or in the horror genre at all. So for a long time, uh, this book sat in my, in my home, this big book just like sat there with these pictures of um, houses on the side. And I kept like flipping it open and trying to decide when I was going to, uh, you know, kind of split and get into it. Um, and yeah i i I decided to to go actually pretty much front to back um, and and there really it wasn't until kind of very late in the the stories where, as I was going through some of the the appendices and things, I thought, oh, I kind of wish I had had a little more time to have have gone through those and then gone back and then come back to them again so I did feel like I didn't quite leave myself enough time for just uh taking my time and drinking in the back Mm -hmm. Um,
3: so um I read this when it first came out ages ago what was it 25
0: years ago or 20 years ago it came out in 2000 so it's 21 21 years ago. yeah,
3: And I had actually gotten the book from, um, I was in a Prairie Lights book in in Iowa City. (laughs) And there was a man who worked there named Paul, who just knew a lot of the regulars there. And he came running up to me. He was a short little man. And he came running up to me with this book. And he's like, you're going to love this. (laughs) (laughs) And I bought it and I opened it up on the bus ride home, which I was living probably about a 20 minute bus ride away. And I was absolutely hooked. Um, I was absolutely hooked and I just waded into it and absolutely loved it and had a great time with it. The first time I read it. And I think one of the things that's so interesting for me about rereading it again is that it's a much different book as an older person who has gotten a PhD in the interim. Mm. Right. Largely because like you're trained as a scholar to use and to read footnotes very differently than I was as that undisciplined, like just, I was just a reader back then. I wasn't a scholar. Right. And so you don't have, you know, I have a method for reading footnotes now. Right. And books with lots of footnotes and lots of endnotes. And so it was, it's one of those things where I was just like, okay, this is a different kind of challenge. Right. Then when I could just go down and play right? Like some of them I would go down and read and others I would skip and then go back to. Whereas now I'm just like, okay, you finish the one narrative, then you go back and you look at and pick up the footnotes as you go through. And um, the other thing that I think was very different this time was having it be, like when I was younger, um, it was so much fun to have this physical object that made me turn it upside down because the book does force you to read things that are upside down and to have the fonts vary a lot. In some places the fonts are really tiny. Mm -hmm. And I found this time I I really had some bad, I had some bad struggles with my lupus Mm -hmm. in the month that I was reading this. And so it was a lot less fun to have to hold such a big book. I was very weak at various points and it was a lot harder to read the tiny fonts. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: Right. It was much more of a chore. So just physically it was a different book. Yeah for me as an older reader than as a younger reader, I still very much enjoyed it. Um, It's just that when I first read it, and and like I said, the second rereading, you know, does it hold up as this magical, wonderful time? No, but it doesn't not hold up really either. Right. You know, Um, it's not one of those things where, you know, you reread it years after you read it the first time, like, I'm really hesitant about going back and rereading things that I loved as a teenager so I'm slightly worried that if I still love them at the age of 50, I haven't really matured.
0: Or you and just I had just, really good taste as a teenager. <laughs>
3: no, I have, but I doubt it, right? Like I just really doubt it, right? Like I'm just like I do. You know, some of these people I really probably don't really want as my boyfriend. <laughs> you know, um, but this one, you know, 20 years later, it still for me was a very entertaining read. Yeah. You know, we should probably tell people that it's experimental fiction.
0: Yeah. Uh, I I did a little bit of that in the intro, but, um, which I should have done while you were listening, but, um, uh, yeah, when you say experimental, what do you mean by that?
3: Um, well, I mean, uh, uh, maybe, um, I think uh, maybe Xenia used the term first, right? Mm -hmm. when, When she introduced herself, maybe you're a better person to tell us or define the term, I think.
1: Um well, when I think about experimental fiction, what does that mean when we call experimental something experimental fiction? To me, that's just the author feels a license to present something in whatever way and whatever form they feel is the best representation of it, mm-hmm. no matter, you know, what an audience might like you know, what the publisher is saying that they want. Um, It's, it's a kind of really no limit experiment. Mm
4: -hmm. And, and, and sort of a a refusal to fit into an existing genre, right? I think like this book crosses
3: genres. It's not easily like categorized. And, and, and I think a a willingness to dispense with like traditional novelistic forms. Mm
2: -hmm. And I thought I had read somewhere um, kind of quickly. I didn't do too much um, online around this book. I really was wanting to glean things from our conversation, but I thought I read somewhere where the author actually went and was deeply involved in the original typeset. Is that- he
4: did it himself because he didn't trust the folks at
0: the publishing house to get it right. Yeah, Which, yeah, there's there's a lot in here, too. Uh, to pay attention yeah. to, and I, I really
3: actually like that, and I like it in theory now, even if it works out less well with my disability than it did when I was younger. I I do think that our material, um, that uh, the materials of our art forms really do matter.
0: Yeah,
3: right. I just it was just reminding me of just how often when we do these book club readings, how how often I've turned to having both an audio book and a physical book. Yeah. for our reading for those times when i just don't have a sufficient amount of focus to really manage reading on my own um how helpful that is and there's no audiobook of this
0: there's no audiobook there's no i e-book. don't really think there
3: could be
4: i can't even imagine them trying i mean i guess if you had different narrators um there's a possibility you could capture some of it but there's a whole like experience here with form and content that I think we don't experience very often with books. We experience more with film and with music, where the form and the content are, are both things that we're we understand we're going to experience when we go into that art form. And with this book, there was there was actually so much in the form that I I personally found it to be really distracting uh, from the story, and with my expectation that the story is sort of. Um, the prime <laughs> experience and that the form should sort of be secondary experience, which may not have been the author's intention at all in this case. But I did find that um, having to turn the book, having to put sections up to the mirror to be able to read the text and stuff just took me out of the experience of the story in a way that I wasn't used to.
2: Interesting, because I, I realized as you're saying that, Jen, that I think... I I found myself privileging the cinematic in my experience. And I'm sure there's, you know, it's part of my bias. Um, but that actually helped. That it meant that there was something about the physical book, like you were saying, the grappling with the weight of it, the flipping of it, all of that, that that wasn't only visceral and and tangible and tactile but it became part of how I was in I was visualizing what some of these characters were experiencing why was it that a particular story would insert itself at this particular time why was I having to like flip things in a certain way um, as if my brain and my experience were also you know a camera lens and was I then flipping was I somehow then up? was I somehow backwards was I somehow out of sorts with what the expectations are when you pick up a heavy book that is so many pages and you're expecting a certain experience so I agree with you and and found um my own maybe coping mechanism I think
3: one of the things that uh, occurred to me at at reading this a second time um, was that we've now had 20 years of found footage horror films Mm -hmm. in addition to this. And so this is published at about the same time that a whole bunch of different artistic um, genres are really getting to this idea of like individual discovery and the discovery being part of the story. Like Blair Witch Project. Yeah, there's a lot of Comparison yeah. Comparison with that, yeah. Yeah. Well, Blair Witch came out in '99. Okay. Yeah. Right. And that's the first. I mean, that's not the first found footage film that existed, but it's the first one that really hit theaters mm-hmm. with a major distribution, right? And that, um you know, that's this is in some respects a, a, the similar complaints that are made about found footage films, right? Which is you you sort of have the you have these filmmakers who are inserting themselves right in the story and there's not a a real linear plot to really be able to 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 follow except to the degree that you yourself start to impose that order on what they're sort of choosing to show you um and yeah now 20 years later it's not really a, a new or innovative technique, right? It's something that we've seen quite a bit of, right? All the paranormal activity films, all of those kinds of things are, you know, it, it's just really to a point where a lot of people in the horror genre are like enough, 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 right? Right. It's overused. It's been done before and whatnot. Um, but that that was something else I was reflecting on here of just going, you know, when 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 this first happened, it it felt a lot more original than it does now.
0: Um, yeah. Uh, interestingly enough too, uh, this book took, uh, 10 years to write as you can imagine. (laughs) Um, I'm just going to go on record as saying I've read, I've written
3: much less good things and it's taken me 10 years to do it. So (laughs) Um, (laughs) this is Uh, not a slight view, uh, Mr. Danielski,
0: if you are if you are listening, you, (laughs) I'm just saying, no, I meant it takes as long as it takes. It does. Uh, I think what I was uh, thinking about is how sort of in tune um, he was to what might have been happening in film even before it was really widespread. Um, uh, you know, over the years since I read it the first time, I have done periodic research, you know. So he started this when his father died, when his father, who was an experimental filmmaker. Um, oh, really? Yeah. So, you know, so knowing that as I went into it, this read, um, you know, I, I kept picking out the parts about fathers and, um, and, you know, both times I really focused on, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff out there about who actually, you know, which character actually wrote this book. Um, and both times I've gone in it that what is, what I'm being told is what I, what, actually is existing right so um and i get really sucked into the the nebenson record this idea of this film that in the world of the book never exists but somehow is still really alive um for me (laughs) as a as a reader um i love how much um what you Um, get out of this book is your relationship to the book Um, but I think you're you know uh, that is a really important thing that you were bringing up about sort of the heaviness of this book Um, you know because there is a lot in the book about disability and yet this book doesn't lend itself super well I definitely had to um, balance it on a pillow (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then use that just um and i did that the first time around when i was much younger too it's just um it's it's just such a big physical thing um i also wish that um as i mean i i sort of wonder is there a good braille version of this book cuz i think that would be fascinating so um we talked a little bit about genres I, it, it, there's so much to talk about this book i just feel like we could I don't even know where to to go next, but um the first time I read this book, it scared the crap out of me. Um, I think in part because there's something um in here that that uh is about constant change, but it's also about this real difference between a house and a home and and what those like being home means.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um and Safety I was Right. And I was in one of those transition phases where I was not, I didn't, you know, I would sometimes like be in my house feeling like I want to go home, (laughs) you know? And so I think that really got, uh, in my brain, you know, that, that, um, the, the house that I was in was not really my home. And so the, the Davidson record really, really got to me and, you know, sort of, um, it really helps me rethink where I wanted to go in the future, too. So I think this book has been pretty um, influential in, in some ways, uh, just in my life. Um, but this time around, it wasn't as scary. And I think, you know, um, as I was talking to Stacy, you know, you were sort of prepared for it to be scary. And, you know, I think in looking at it cinematically, you, you didn't find it scary at all. Um, so would you call this a horror novel?
2: well, i'll I'll just jump in and and, yeah, Aubrey, and I had a, a few moments a couple of days ago, and I wasn't quite uh, finished with the book, but I had said, I think she beautifully prepared me for this to be really scary and And so I made this conscious decision to go ahead and and read this and commit to to talking about it. um And so that was part of what. Helped me move through it. Um, But I, I do think that it goes back to what you were saying, Lisa. Not only was Blair Witch, you know, this, all of the things you said, and the marketing was kind of the first time where they were doing what, you know, I agree, the author was doing, you know, was planning for 10 years before some of these films got a chance to do it, which is there were times. And to me, I think one of the more frightening things is, wait a second, wait, is the original movie that we're talking about here and that these people are exploring, wait, was that real? No, wait, that wasn't real, right? Was that? No. Wait. (laughs) And so I'll maybe let others talk about what they think in terms of genre. I was, I will say, pleasantly surprised it wasn't the most terrifying thing I had ever read. Um and, and yet there were haunting dark places with very broken people. And I felt that the exploration of who they were and potentially emotionally and, and psychically and mentally going through be more frightening than even some of the physical. Yeah.
4: I, I was prepared for this to be a horror novel and I don't normally read or watch scary stuff. I I've started to a little bit as I've gotten older, but as a kid, I was like Ghostbusters was it, man. That was scary enough. Um, I, I will confess to being like slightly disappointed because I wanted this to scare me and like get under my skin a little bit, because I know that people have said that this is the kind of story that would like get into them and kind of like, live inside them and they would just think about it all the time. And and that that didn't happen for me. And I kind of wonder if part of my experience was having a set of expectations about what mm. my experience was going to be compared to people who maybe read the book without having um, this a set, a set of expectations, right? So it's 21 years later, the people who read it when it first came out, I'm guessing must have had a very different experience, not knowing what they were going into. But I had a set of Expectations going into it, and I didn't find it. I didn't find it scary in the way that I wanted to be scared. Mm. What I, what the way I interpreted the horror components were that we weren't really. The the Navidson record isn't really about a house. (laughs) It's about the insides of these people's minds. It's about what the people are experiencing, and what and what they experience in the house is a reflection of what's going on in their own psyches. And so I. I ended up really interpreting the Davidson record from like a psychological perspective. Um, and then thinking that that is all actually created in Zampano's brain because he wrote about a movie that didn't exist and that that's being interpreted for us actually by Johnny. And so mm-hmm. there's layers of everybody's psyche is like an additional layer to the story. And every single one of those people is like, you know, it's, they're not trustworthy narrators and, and they're all having their own psychological issues. Mm -hmm. And so at at a certain point, I'm like, there's nothing here that I can believe to, to like be true (laughs) about any of these vested layers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. Um,
1: that characterization. I'm, I'm a horror buff. You know, I, i I read horror novels. I watch horror movies. Like it's kind of like my, my first love. Um, this was not scary to me at all. And I don't know if it's just because I've consumed so much horror that I'm kind of, you know, my, my palate is kind of deadened in that way. But, um, but I didn't find this scary. Um, I I wanted to like I wanted to get spooked I wanted to to feel moved I wanted to to feel disturbed but it it just it just didn't happen to me for me I think partly because all all of those layers of psyche that that Jen is mentioning each of them on their own did not strike me as as a psyche that was particularly unpredictable. So and for me, unpredictability is where things get scary. Yeah.
3: Hi, um, you know, I, I think I was sort of the person who nagged um, Aubrey into kind of making October a month where we set aside uh, time to sort of talk about at least the supernatural, if not horror in, in the book club, simply because um, I am a big fan of the movies. Out like Zinnia and books, and, but unlike Zinnia, I am a giant freaking coward. Uh, so, you know whether it's you know whether it's Mike Myers or Jason or um, um, that horrible person from Saw um, or or a Mean House, um, I am easily frightened. And I think for me, the 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 thing that's so nice about um, supernatural, fantasy, horror, and those kinds of things as a genre is it kind of challenges us to think about what's real and what's not yeah right it's an existential kind of thing and that it does I found the book I've always found the book unsettling simply because space and time don't behave the way that they should right even with even in the sort of secondhand retellings of what happened in the house right like It it may not be sort of like a jump scare kind of situation, but the facts are we're never going to know what happens to these people.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. Right. And staring into that black hole for me is very scary.
0: Yeah. I think um, unsettling. um, And those were words that I kept picking out at this time too. Uncanny unsettling. Um, There's the, this section, which I, I, I also found, much more of this to be hilarious this time around. Now that I'm older, um, the section where um, Karen gets quotes from all the different kinds of critics, and she's got a quote from Harold Bloom, and um, I just it just cracked me up. That whole that whole section was very funny. Um, but I think unsettling, I think, is also um, a word that I brought to it uh this time in in a bunch of different ways, because um I think because I'm thinking about um American history and the way we talk about American history and I was thinking uh, again because i had um in the last twenty years learned about Ted Danielowski and how he was a Polish immigrant, an experimental filmmaker. I was thinking about sort of the immigrant experience and you know what it means to be American, and thinking about sort of the 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 kinds of unsettling that are in this, and it did also feel like a very American story. Um, and the word unsettling just kept getting at me um, in terms of what the the story is doing to the reader. Well, me. <laughs> what i was bringing to the story this time but also just in the the physicality of the book and um you know the the nature of of this film you know because if you um you know that it's psychological that the labyrinth in the in this film is psychological but it's also for them these characters whether they exist in the world of of house of leaves or not um are experiencing it Physically as well, um, and that it went all the way back to Jamestown. You know, there was just a lot in that—that that sort of word, said unsettling, uncanny—that was really um, just coming out at me this, in, during this read. So, can I ask a question? Yes, please. Because, because I think Stacy said something and I didn't quite catch it, and that was that the
3: film doesn't exist.
2: <laughs> well, that's yeah. the question. Like, do, does the original film? Do those people, was there really a film? Is there a film? Is there, in, my, in my world, is there a film? Is there a film in the book? Wait, so I actually love the tension of the not necessarily knowing exactly for sure what was real. <laughs> and, and so,
3: but please, go on with it. <laughs> that was my question. I was just, going, for me, I assumed that there was.
4: Even right. though Johnny can find no evidence of it and even though Zampano is blind, and could not have seen a film if there was the film.
3: Yeah, no, I assumed that it was there. Because I mean, you know, just because you're blind, it doesn't mean you can't enjoy a film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Like you can hear things, right? And it wasn't yeah. clear that um Zampanos, um, to me that his physical, um, his physical limits necessarily came on before or after, mm-hmm. right, viewing the film. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I I assumed that it because it's it's awfully hard to it's probably hard for me to accept that there's as much commentary. And I, I mean, this in and of itself would be very meta and very funny, right? If there was the amount of commentary on the Navidson record, on the or, or, right? As there was for all the citations that there are throughout this book, if there's just nothing.
4: Well, that was my interpretation was that Zampano was, was um, descending into madness and had invented all of this, including all of the commentary. From his own mind and that but again I don't know right Like,
3: I have a house that's actually acting up <laughs> okay <laughs> so you you have like a physical there's like a physical house a very literal woman Jen. okay <laughs> yeah. and so there's actually a house that's not and there's uh, an unfortunate uncle who doesn't come back and yeah there's yeah, a, okay yeah
0: yeah okay yeah, right. I mean, so I I have a little bit of of both of of you in there. So, you know, I think there's a lot in here. Um I don't think um Zampano was going crazy. Um I just think he was had a lot in his mind to get out. I don't know that I thought he was mad. <laughs> you know, obsessive possibly. Um but I wouldn't say descending into um, maybe embracing <laughs> um I mean, for this to I be truly- true he'd have to be delusional
3: right for that to be true he'd have yeah. to be
4: yeah
3: um, yeah and but that's
4: where I started at the very beginning we're going into an apartment with a dead elderly man with claw marks on the floor and everything taped up so that like all the air ducts are sealed and like no light can come in and there's like a a thing which turns Mm -hmm. out to be the trunk that has the story in it in the corner to me it's like we're walking into the space that a person who has descended into madness created to like cocoon himself into his own psyche like that's the way I interpreted that
3: Yeah, you know, he was trying to protect himself from the thing. I I think
0: it's a bit of both, but I also think, you know, he was blind and was, you know, doing this life's work, which he needed to block out all the sound because he was really sensitive to sound. You know, so, you know, um, I think I just, I thought of him um, as a, not as broken, I guess. Um, You know, I I do think that he was just, yeah, so... uh, um, so I think a bit of both, like, I think the, like, and when you're talking about what is real, right. The name it's in record as a film is real in my brain. Right. It doesn't have to exist in the world to be real.
4: Right. Doesn't well, it? yes, because this is a book. And so like, literally, it, if we're taking this totally at like what is actually true, then like none of it's real, but, but it's like, what do we believe to be real as mm-hmm. we are experiencing the story?
0: And I think it's both. You know, I think that in in some ways it, it has to be both. It has to shaking be both. her head, no. It has to be both
3: because no middle ground. They're, well, they're, how can something be both at the same time, right? Like either he's making it all up or he has actually encountered this film and these documents, right?
0: I mean, is Zampano, you know, was he tied to a different dimension? You know, I mean, with this whole space time, you know, changing. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe he's from a different, you know, part of. Yeah, I mean, I just think perhaps in Johnny Truant's world, there is no film. But I think Zapano comes from a world where there is a film. It's a fascinating and I think both interpretation. Both of those things are true in the story. I mean, I both think of that, those things are
3: true. That's, that's, that's something that I would buy.
1: Yeah, I would tend to agree with Aubrey. I think. Especially in the context of the book as a whole, going back to what we were talking about in terms of just how to read it in the first place. I had an easier time with it when I saw it as a whole as a representation of somebody's mind, like the Mm -hmm. little universe of somebody's mind, whether that's the actual author or just an example of a mind where we have all these layers and we have memories and we have Memories that are supplemented by our own imaginations, mm-hmm. and we have um, you know the people that are backing up our opinions, like we have all these things going on, and then even the footnotes, um everything that we reference to think how we think, everything that supports how we think. so I wasn't really troubled by um whether something was actually real or not. Because I was very much in that space of, it's as real as anything is or not.
2: Yeah, I was trying to find, I have so many little things flagged that mm-hmm. there's no way I think I'm going to find the part. There's a, a point where Johnny talks about, you know, his dissension into... Madness, wherever, what, wherever he was going, um, or wherever he was stuck, uh, and his correlation to it being a relationship to Zapano's work, mm-hmm. and his own being haunted is my language by yeah. Zapano's work, and I think, I mean, I, I, I so love the way you have framed Zapano, Aubrey. And I want to say, I feel like it's so generous and it's in the sense that like, it never crossed my mind that he was just pulled up doing good work. It, I absolutely um, am on the, on team Jen where he (laughs) descended somewhere as well. And I think for me, again, real or not real, I mean, we haven't had a chance to talk about ghosts or no ghosts or those kinds of things. Um, but there is this point where I thought, okay, if, if Zapana was impacted in that way and Johnny's impacted that way, like, am I now at risk because I have read this book and yeah. I now have the Davidson Report and these experiences in my psyche as well? And I think that for me, that's where the, the horror and the startling and the darkness, you know, where it's prickly and interesting. Um, and makes me still grapple with like, is that worth everything I went through to to get get it? And oh my gosh, am I going to be okay?
3: Is this <laughs> now the ring? I was <laughs> just going to say, other people yeah, read this.
4: it gets passed down. Hmm. Hmm.
0: I mean, I think he. I actually think the ring is mentioned in here, isn't it? Sure. Yeah.
3: So. No, I mean the thing about um, the thing about him being interdimensional or extra dimensional. I think is really kind of a fun way to think about it because again, this whole thing about sort of sort of meditating on the nature of reality. You know, you've probably seen those little quips about how you know there are philosophers who think we're all living in a simulation, right? Matrix. and mm-hmm. it's one yeah. of the. It's sort of one of the. Okay, and this is going to get weird. So just hold on for a second, my friends. It's going to get weird. Um, it's one of the explanations that people have for um, like Sasquatch and Bigfoot sightings, right? Is that these are these are interdimensional beings and it would make sense, right? If this is a simulation that some people would see it and some people wouldn't, right? It would be an easy thing, right? To kind of set up so that some people are set apart and seeing something and other people don't and treat them like they're crazy, right? Like, and, and I'm sitting here, I just, I'm like, hmm, now we're into sort of Donnie Darko land. Um, and that actually just makes it more interesting to me I think one of the reasons why I kind of just refused to believe that um, Mr. Zampano um, is ill is that my way of reading the book for me is just a lot more fun
4: right that may very well be true that may very well be true because I was just reading it with like oh my goodness look at all of this stuff coming out of his head and like it, 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 it didn't hold together or hang together in a, in a way that I enjoyed. Right. With, right. right? Because I'm just reading it as like, oh my gosh, he spent his life on this,
3: creating right. all of this. Yeah. Right. Whereas in my universe, there's actually a labyrinth and it's interesting Mm -hmm. Right. And this is like when my husband asked me, like, why are you so interested in things like Bigfoot and whatnot? And I'm like, because it's more fun to believe that there are things out there that we haven't discovered. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I actually think the
4: Davidson record is the most interesting part of the whole story for me. Um, I think if we... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is going to, Aubrey and Lisa are going to have a meltdown. If we extracted that part of the story from like all the other stuff, much of which I found to be really distracting and really sort of dove into the Navidson record as a, as a horror story, I actually think I might have enjoyed that more.
0: Yeah, you know, I think... So I think this comes to, you know, uh, along with Zenya and Lisa, I'm, I'm a huge horror fan. Um, And I think that's why I really liked this story within a story, within a story, part of it, Um, because it gets at what Stacy said, which is like, now I'm, I'm now part of this. So, you know, um, how I'm interpreting it and the notes that I'm taking how similar to Johnny am i you know even though you know Johnny is a very different person obviously
4: frankly um, i'm not a fan of
0: johnny like let's get yeah, that out there. i mean totally you know, not a fan i mean you can tell this this is a, a you know of all of the characters you know johnny truant is is the the most broken it seems he's um, deeply problematic yeah well he's he problematic to to- but he, He needs to go to therapy, but, you know, he also seems to have been abused as a child and, you know. his mom is, well, I guess we could talk about the Wellstow letters and and talk Mm -hmm. about what his mom is going through and all of that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's so much, there's so many levels. And so, you know, um, the way I read it is the first time we we get um, the editors, whoever the editors are, (laughs) um, tell us, which, you know, I'm assuming is Mark, but, like, editors um, as a character, um, tell us to look at the letters and the obituary. I go and I look at the obituary and I read the letters and I um, uncode that letter and, um, and I've done it each time. <laughs> I encode it each time. And this time I actually wrote it in the book, which I've never done before. Um, reading it on the Metro, which was just very strange. And, um, and I, and I think without, all of the, without the levels of critique on the film, without the levels of, like, thinking about what things mean, I don't know that um, the Davidson record alone would be worth it. Like, I, to me, it's the, all of this interaction, the, if you believe they're, they're fake quotes, Right. Even So in the world of the book, if you believe they are fake quotes, the fact that, you know, Zampano knew enough about all of these different critics to be able to fake the way they would write. I mean, you know, and that's what's really funny about the, you know, that that critic piece in the end where Karen is, because... It is really like Stephen King would totally say that, you know, like, and Stephen King, you know, is also like Lisa, he's a big baby, right? (laughs) So he's, you know, he's like me, like I, he has to have his feet tucked in, you know, under the covers before the lights go out, you know, and um, all of that just makes it so much more fun, but also just, you know, gets that how much you can think You know, and and everyone's different perspectives bring to just one little detail, you know. And that, you know, Mark as writer is like looking at all of these things from all of these different perspectives. And I think that's where the cinematic part really comes in. um, Because I think he is really thinking about film and perspective, Um, and, and that, that is what comes out. So it's not just the film. It's how we interpret film. It's how we experience how we're like, are we hearing it? You know, um, six minutes of blackness. Can you imagine sitting in a theater with six minutes of blackness? I mean, I I feel like there was something recently that, that did something that was like silent or, but I, I can't remember.
4: You know, this is reminding me of a of a question that I had as I was reading it. So there is an element here of Mark, I think, mm-hmm. critiquing the concept of object measurement, objective measurement, mm-hmm. because there are, and actually I have a note somewhere and I'm going to try to find it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So the tape measure,
0: mm-hmm.
4: video itself. The photography mm-hmm. itself, are all found to be incorrect. They are all actually found to be insufficient to describe the reality that the people are experiencing. Mm-hmm. And, theref- and that, that, that break between what people believe should be able to be objectively measured and what they are experiencing is driving them mad. So, like, they keep hiring people to come, like, remeasure the house, right? Because it's like, it should be matching up and it's not matching up. And it was making me think about how a lot of the reviews of the book talk about how this is potentially a, the book is potentially a critique of literary critique or of film critique. And I thought that this critique of objective measurement was a really interesting thread Mm -hmm. throughout And I'm not sure I have anything else actually to say about it, except that I noticed it and I thought it was interesting.
2: Absolutely. There's those moments where, you know, where it says and you realize that every person who experiences the hallway staircase, the, however far they get into this, what extra space, whatever we want to call it, this dark, dark place in, in this house um, that is different based on the person's experience Mm -hmm. yeah like who they are and and what they're experiencing so yeah how do you objectively put a tape measure to that but I will just go back and say one quick thing Aubrey about quotes again I think just realizing the kind of glasses I was using as I was reading this that when we got to the critique Karen's quotes from the different critics there's Tons to say about that. Um, but I was like, oh, it doesn't surprise me that both Stephen, that, you know, that Stephen King and Kubrick um, are the two that are like, this was real, right? Like, totally, The right? Navinson report, that was real, right? They both have a slightly different way of saying it, but I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. I'll go along for this part of the ride, because now I've gotten a little permission
0: from, <laughs> I don't know.
2: <laughs> from...
0: From the critics, then, yeah. But the um, objective
2: measurement, yeah.
0: No, I think it's important, and I think that's also, um, and, and I think Lisa probably can speak a lot more to this, because I have not read The Poetics of Space. Have you? I assume you have. Yeah. I
3: do teach The Poetics of Space, and, I mean, there's a whole universe of spatial theory um, and spatial philosophy that has sort of developed in the 20 years after this, but you know, like the original Lefebvre critiques of uh, like everyday space and measured space and professionalized space and, and, you know, sort of parcelized space, right? And really sort of getting people, and, and, and now, you know, all these wonderful sort of indigenous theorists talking about the way in which settler colonialism um, sort of creates, you know, this illusion of space being something that's objectively measurable. Right. Like that's one of the parts of the book that I actually love a great deal, but I don't expect normal people (laughs) who haven't spent their life, you know, reading Lefebvre in French. Um, Really, you know, um, to pick up on, but just how wonderfully disorienting it is when space doesn't behave in a predictable manner.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think what you just said about indigenous voices and, and objective measurement—that is what I was pulling out this this time. Um, and there's yeah, there's just so much. I I I think the the part where they find the the journal <laughs> from Jamestown, and they've whose stairs. We found these stairs um, in the middle of nowhere. It's just um, it, it just can go on, and then. And then how that kind of changing space can be mirrored, you know, in your imagination. Um, and we've talked a little bit before, but um, I'm not sure with, I mean, definitely not with Stenya. So um, I, you know, am one of those people who, when I close my eyes and imagine something, like, I don't actually see it. So I see, you know, it's blackness. So it's like the the way my brain works, I don't see the picture. So, you know, when uh you uh is it arthur conan doyle who's like you know the the mind palace where you put things in your memory like that that makes no sense to me because there's no way i could build a mind palace because i, I have a mind shack <laughs> mind shack see i couldn't even have a mind shack you know a it's mind just, storage unit I have A, storage, <laughs> unit <laughs> it's a storage, storage unit crammed
3: in there so yeah, yeah it's just a imagine... 405 <laughs>
0: Yeah. I sort of just imagine that there's like a bunch of weird filing cabinets in my brain, but like, I don't see them. They're just, yeah, that's how I would describe it. But, um, and so I think part of what I really like about this too is, is how, you know, that sort of uh, inconsistency on the outside sort of is mirrored on the inside of all of the different characters. Um, and that sort of idea of, um, infinity, if you will, you know, that, there's nothing to stop the Davidson record from from living inside of you, right? Inside your brain.
3: But only if you
0: want it to, Stacey. It but only if you that. want it to, right. <laughs> you can ask it to leave. I, I appreciate
3: you saying that. <laughs> you, can
0: you can ask it to leave, it to leave yes.
3: <laughs> no, I mean, I think this, um, you brought up Kubrick and King, and I had actually just finished off watching a documentary and I can't remember which doc what, what its title is and I so sad that I can't remember about just the whole proliferation of theories about Kubrick's The Shining about how it's Zinya did you add something that you wanted uh, to say?
1: Isn't that like room one thirty is it room that's, one,
3: that's the that's the title. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um you know about the just the sheer number of fan theories that are like, no, 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 it's not it's not a horror story, you know, Jack Nicholson's character was actually a loving, wonderful husband. It was actually all in Shelley Duval's mind, and you know there's are a we talking about
0: male fans
3: <laughs> well, let's just put it this way. there's a lot of male youtubers right <laughs> who who are big prescribers of this. Of these theories, but you know they point to things like, oh, the television set doesn't have a cord, or this room when you first see it has a has the light switch, and then it doesn't have a light switch when she's there. And what I think was interesting about this is so much of this depends on their read of what she's capable of imagining,
2: Mm.
3: right? She's capable of imagining a room, but not imagining the the TV cord right now the truth be told like and everybody's like oh kubrick was such a meticulous filmmaker that he never would have allowed these continuity errors and i'm going i don't actually know like i'm such a sloppy person that i catch you know typos you know years and years and things that i publish later like I, i i think like incompetence is a much better explanation for most things than deliberate artistic um intent but um that's one of the things that we would have to kind of get around to and sort of circling back to the idea that this was all Zampano's creation. What an imagination, if Mm so, right? Like this is not your aliens are talking to me from the television set level of delusion. This is an entire universe of creation uh, with finely wrought details. Yeah. And and it's just, I was riffing off that because in my mind I'm the sort of person who would not necessarily be able to include uh, a chord on the TV set in my imagination.:
4: Yeah. Question then. So let's play around with this idea that the Davidson record is real, and it's Zampano's life's work. Is it then a failure of Johnny's abilities that he is unable to track down any evidence of it beyond? Zompano's papers? Like, do we just attribute that disconnect to, you know, Johnny's pretty much drunk and high like 98% of the time and probably <laughs> isn't doing a quality job here?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and it's also, you know, it's not pre-internet, but it's, pre- it's pretty pretty much It's pretty much pre-internet. It's pre-web. Yeah. 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 So um, but also, you know, um, you're looking for the objective measurements.
4: Yes, I am. <laughs> now you're learning about me, Aubrey. I'm like,
2: I want evidence of this thing. Is there evidence of it? Right.
0: Right. <laughs>
2: yeah. What just came to mind was there there's that moment where Johnny runs into people who have not only heard of the Navidson report, but they've actually Read the notes by some guy named Johnny Truant, and made a song about he's it. Sort of startled yes. that his writing has made its way um, with people passing from person to person. These this clump of documents or this stack of pages is so that makes me wonder too if you know is that also related to what he's experiencing he there's tons of things he doesn't remember there are moments now lost in time moments like he does put all of that supposedly in a storage unit but the timing of it I was like this is so fascinating when did he put it in a storage unit and then how are these people getting a chance to read his actual writing yes
4: and I really question Johnny's narration because there are a number of times where Johnny writes something. And then afterwards he's like, Oh yeah, I just made all that up. And so there's a real question to me of, uh, how, how trustworthy pretty much any of his description is of what his experiences are knowing that he is, you know, he's having some mental health challenges. He's a substance user. And, um, that sort of, increasing <laughs> over the life of the story. So what can we believe to be true about what he's telling us he experienced? I don't know.
3: I'm trying to think with this about, cause I'm thinking about like pre-web. I mean, we certainly had the, we had the web. Libraries. Yeah. Yeah. In, in the early two thousands, but that's not when the action of the story is taking place. Nope. Right. And so, <sighs> I mean there's also the possibility that there's more there's some sort of intentionality on the part of whatever makes the labyrinth right whatever sort of intrusions into our reality that there's a consciousness or that there's a power behind that that is intentionally messing with with Johnny right like and Johnny's Yeah that's the, an interesting the,
4: interpretation.
3: Right like that, yeah. that's kind of was again Lisa's willing to self-supply the things that are going to scare her. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so right. there's an
4: intrusive power that gets into the mind, and that's then reflected in the physical reality of the, of or, the or our
3: perceptions of it, yeah. right? or our capabilities of handling it. And that he'd be he'd be a really easy victim, right? In this, because he's not a, a reliable man on a day-to-day basis, right? Just like Zampano, right? And, in some respects, like their their um experiences with it are a lot less extreme than the families, right? because the family on their face look like just sort of relatively normal well to do people right and there's an the-
4: interesting thing there, which is that anybody they bring into the house kind of immediately sees the changes in the reality, they can immediately see the door. So there's something about the space of the home, of the house. Anyone who kind of enters into that space is now like within that reality because, you know, they bring in Billy Reston and they bring in Holloway and they bring in all these other folks to explore. And if it was only a power messing with people's perceptions, then you would expect that those people wouldn't see the same things that the Davidson family is seeing, but they do right away.
0: Mm-hmm. So, you know, the other thing um to get to what you're saying, Lisa, is, you know, this power, what is this power? You know, is it um to me, you know, it's also this power of storytelling, right? So, and how stories can get inside and ripple and travel and um change along the way, you know. I'm not saying it was aliens.
3: Yeah. <laughs> it was aliens. It was totally aliens.
0: <laughs> I mean a staircase in Jamestown, you know. No. You're shaking your head no it's not aliens, Stacey.
2: <laughs> well, I so there's there's a running joke of well, it's it's become a lighthearted thing among my close friends because I'm a theater person. I came up as a theater person. And so I absolutely believe that they're ghosts. Like, without, I like, it's not even a question in, in my world that ghosts exist because all the best theaters are haunted. Um, and this is, I say this with as much surety as Lisa just said that those staircases and whatever, aliens. But for whatever reason, I do not believe in aliens. I'm like, nope, totally possible for <laughs> humans to have done something weird and strange in Jamestown so that there were stairs and a journal totally there with the humans and maybe some ghosts.
3: <laughs> oh yeah. I'm the yeah. rational one there, Stacy. <laughs> 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 yes. But you know, the thing about it that, that makes it kind of interesting for me is that we don't actually, I mean, I, I said aliens just joking because I love that meme. Yeah. Um, Aubrey's one of my Facebook friends. She knows I use that whole history, history channel guy. It was aliens meme a lot. Um, But, you know, we don't have to know what that, what sort of force that is in order for Mm. it to be kind of terrifying. Mm -hmm. Right. As a matter of fact, it's actually, for me, a little bit scarier kind of not knowing. Right. Um, Like what if this is a situation where this really is a simulation and we're all just rats in a maze.
2: Yeah, I absolutely agree with what you're saying. I, I think that there are the moments in, in my experience of this whole book where the unknowingness, the not knowing, the uncertainty, all of those things, that was all the fun, the most fun, the scariest parts.
3: Auri's just looking at us in amusement.
0: No, I'm just I'm just really happy to be talking with women about this book. I mean. Uh, I have loved this book forever. So, um, uh, and I was telling Stacy and I will tell now the whole world that um, I've been obsessing because my, my neighbor looks a lot like Mark Danielski. Um, I don't think he is, but I, now I'm going to have to ask because. He
3: yeah, looks you could lot. just go outside and sit in your garden with
0: the book, like prominently displayed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've been carrying the book around with me for a while, but um Yeah.
4: Are we going to start seeing Aubrey descending into some kind of madness?
0: Well, okay. So I read this book before I lived in La-, uh, in LA. So I lived in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I read this book. I moved to LA. I moved into an apartment in Hollywood on Whitley and Franklin. And then I reread this book and realized that I moved to where Zampano lived. <laughs> yeah. That's a little scary. With a courtyard,
2: really?
0: <laughs> I mean uh, one of the one of the few buildings on Whitley near Franklin that had a beautiful courtyard. Um, how weird is that? Just say
3: oh, how weird is it that both you and I at one point lived on Franklin? How weird is that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it is a small world. Um, But I think the other thing is that when you're reading this, you notice those those little coincidences. Um, You know, I do have a neighbor who who wears the little hat that I don't I don't know how to describe it. You said pork pie hat. Is it a pork pie hat? I have no idea, Stacey. Um, But the hat that he wears.
4: Can I introduce a topic of conversation for us to explore a little bit? Can we talk about sexism in the book Mm -hmm. and misogyny? because for me, reading it in the year 2021, I may have had a very different experience if I'd read that when it first came out, but to me, uh, it was deeply sexist. And all of Johnny's storyline, first of all, is like deeply misogynistic and problematic like that. And I'm not even really talking about that part of it, which I found to be, I found his narration to be like really off-putting in the modern era. It felt very Bukowski, very Hunter S. Thompson-esque to me. And I was, it's just not really my style. So I was kind of like, ugh, Johnny. But even if we're looking just at like the Navidson record, one of the things I noticed is that Karen as a character, so all all the protagonists are men. And Karen's character is an obstacle to all of those men. All the way up pretty much- to the very end when she has the sort of one act of like saving Will's life. Um, and I, I found it to be troubling. I, I was really bothered by Karen's portrayal as a very shallow sort of stereotypically shallow, beautiful woman. Um, and it made me feel kind of yucky. As I was reading the sections about her and Will, and and it was like he had all these amazing, like this brilliance and this drive, and she was set as a character to constantly be like putting the brakes on what he wanted to achieve, and without expression of what she wanted to achieve, I didn't feel like she was fully fleshed out as a as a character at all. And I'm kind of wondering if anybody else had that experience with the book
3: yes yes i don't think you're wrong about that at all right she's only interesting because she's pretty the end
0: yeah you know although i think i i got a little bit more out of um her uh making parts of the film this time around and 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 really did look at the perspectives and that the male gaze on her is very sexist, yes. But I felt that the, um, the pieces that were sort of um, more from her seemed less sexist than I thought and mm. much um, yeah, it was just my first read-through, obviously, so I yeah, might pick up I mean, on but, some more but of that I, nuance. I do think you're right. I mean, you know, uh, particularly since, you know, there is this sense that there, that we are reading it through Johnny's eyes, right? Um, and, you know, he definitely has many, many, many mommy issues and daddy issues, but a lot of mommy issues. Um, so, so there is, you know, that, you know, you're reading it... Um, it's hard not to sort of feel his sense of abandonment too. You know what I mean? Um, Johnny's you mean, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, yes, I think you're absolutely correct. Yeah. I feel like Johnny's looking for connection
4: Mm -hmm. and, and feeling. He wants to feel something sort of like anything. And that Mm -hmm. leads him into a lot of like destructive behaviors and destructive relationships for sure.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Karen was a really difficult character for me um, I don't know if it's partly because like the name Karen has come to represent this <laughs> right now, but um, yeah, I, like, I, I couldn't, I could never get like a good grip on her. So um, she, it was, it was really, really difficult for me to like be with her. Cause I mm-hmm. just, she was, she was very kind of slippery and vague for me.
0: Yeah. And I think the same with the, the kids, you know, um, Chad and Daisy, like, I don't really know what's going on that Chad is, I mean, I understand wanting to be outside of this particular house a lot, but there's something else going on, you know? Um, And Daisy seems to, you know, either she's too young, although I I can't really get a grip on what her age is. um, But, you know, she, neither of the kids have very much anything going for them. really.
2: I think maybe to piggyback a little bit on that, Aubrey, my sense was there are these brief moments where I was like, Oh, Oh, there's Karen. Like I can kind of see her. I can see, you know, and sort of get a sense of who, who she is, but there weren't enough of those, um, which I think goes back to what Jen is saying um, that I, that I agree with as well and Zenya as well. Um, and I felt like when it came to the kids, I felt like, the author had the same a similar challenge that in a way the child the male child is more fleshed out and more active than the female child is um and and so yeah i was yeah i mean i all of i'll say all of those things and say that i absolutely agree um and i'm really torn because out of all so i wanted to connect with karen early on because i actually have a phobia so i was like ooh. This is going to be my way in, and then it wasn't because it wasn't really flushed. Right? She just she has a phobia. The author gives her a phobia that keeps her from being part of the exploration of what's was my take on it. But I had a really a a, a pretty distinct connection with Johnny, and and I found myself really torn. Because all the things you said, Jen, I absolutely agree and, and believe and, and was experiencing as well. And I kept feeling compelled. Just, I do believe that part of it is that this, his story in particular is set in Hollywood um, in the early 90s when I was young and kind of his age at that time in that place. So I was running and working in a small theater, a few doors down from the Dragonfly, not that far from the places that they would hop. And so I didn't know a Johnny and I wasn't a Johnny per se. And I wasn't necessarily the women that Johnny was with or he and Lude would attract or or connect with, just to put it very gently, obviously. Um, but I knew those people. I absolutely did. I knew artistic people who were self-medicating. I knew people who were out all night, who could barely make their rent. I could totally see the apartment. So I was having this really like push and pull experience because I kept going back to him and going, oh, I know exactly where you are. Mm-hmm. I know that exact physical space. I know exactly what that carpet looks like. I, I can totally imagine. I know the woman you went home with. Mm-hmm. You know, I know what she looked like the next day. I know that she said at some point, yeah, the nightmares were really scary, but he was kind of a nice guy. Otherwise, (laughs) you know, where did he disappear to? Uh, All of those things. So, yeah, I'm like, gosh. And I think, too, just to tag one last thing onto this particular point is that when I got to his mother's letters, I was really hoping that our author would take some more time. Um, I was like, ooh, here's where you have the chance. Because now we know Johnny. We don't need to know more about him. But I felt like we weren't getting to know all that much about him.
4: He so, did publish additional letters separately from the book, right? There's a whole, whole other text,
2: I Whale-stone think, letters. called the
4: Whalestone Letters, which is like an expansion on P's letters from the psychiatric hospital. But I've not that read is- them.
2: I was confused because it also said that they were all included in this edition. Oh, that's a good but, question. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe maybe more reading. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, and I think, Stacey, where you're getting at, too, you know, um, it, it's hard not to recognize that, that while it's spelled differently, his friend's name is Lude. You know? Um, oh, you yeah. know. And uh, his last name is
4: Truant. I mean, there's a lot right. of... There are a lot of little word plays and yeah. signifiers. Yeah, and go ahead,
1: Sonia. I kind of saw Johnny as like almost like the reptilian layer of our collective consciousness. Yeah, I like that. I didn't. Ex- I didn't expect much more from him than we got. He he just was what he was, and and it's you know it's unfortunate, but you know that's us sometimes.
2: <laughs> Like that. Yeah. I mean, I think even when he gets to a point where he hasn't been doing drugs and he hasn't been drinking and he still looks like heck, he smells, he's out of place in the world, he's getting evicted. It's like the last we see of him, he's sitting on the beach, you know, wherever he's gotten himself to the beach and he's sitting there. And that's all we know, you know, that's kind of all we get to really know of him. So yeah, I mean, completely untrustworthy. I was like, you tell stories from the beginning, how much of it is true. You don't even believe the story that your mother admits to the actions she took against you that put her in, you know, that wound up um, getting her institutionalized. So what's, you know, what's
0: to be saved? In many ways he's scarred. (laughs) Yeah.
4: I did have more compassion for him as a character after I read the Whalestow letters at the end. I definitely had less frustration with him and more compassion. But I keep coming back to, again, trying to figure things out, which with this book, I think is sort of like a, a, a fool's errand, right? Because there is not going to be a single interpretation. There's not one right answer. There's none of these things, but trying to understand what, our author was intending with all of Johnny's story time, and there's so much in the book that to me doesn't advance um, my understanding of what's going on, or or doesn't even seem to tie into it at all. That I feel like I'm kind of like with a different set of editors, unknowing <laughs> who are these mystery editors. The different set of editors, I a slightly streamlined version of this might have been a much more enjoyable read for me i think i got really caught up and in many cases frustrated with all of the tangents all of the like chapters on echoes and you know like lists just lists of names and and all of johnny's storytelling and thinking is there some meaning to this? So I went, I wanted to go through it all because I was trying to extract meaning and then finding like I I wasn't able to extract what I wanted from it and then being frustrated,
3: you know? This is not a book where the more you read, the more clear everything gets. No, no. Yeah. (laughs) I actually have to admit that um, both the first time I read this and this time that I read this, I have really seriously thought editorially about whether or not, Johnny's necessary, right?
4: I had those same thoughts, yeah.
3: Especially if you read it my way of the Navison records, stuff, real, yeah. All this stuff is real, yeah. Um, and I, you know, I i empathize because I mean, he's uh, you know, I th- this is also one of my quirks as a reader. Um, Aubrey and I have had this discussion before about how she has so much more patience for the multiple narratives, right? The multiple narrators structure of a novel. I'm Yeah. I'm like, it worked in war and peace. Uh, (laughs) Right. But I, if, if I have a narrator that I don't like, I get really pissy and there's no other adjective that really works there. I get really pissy. If you're going to drag me away from a storyline, I'm deeply vested in and I care about like, what's going to happen, what's going to happen, what's going to happen to drag me back to deal with a narrator that I can't freaking stand. And I don't care about what's happening to those people. And um, it, that's a real struggle for me with Johnny, right? Because Johnny's hard to watch.
4: Yeah. It's like watching a bad car accident kind of over and over again.
3: That's right. Right. He's, he's hard to sit with because of his misogyny and because of his self-destruction. Um, and, you know, you, I do have a great deal of empathy for him because he has suffered a lot of trauma if if we're to believe all of this and I do believe you know that and you know like and, and like the fact that he sort of generates a story and prevaricates and does these various things that bothers me less uh, because I mean people do make up stories and especially storytellers like they love stories and I have you know many beloved um, relatives for whom like the truth is irrelevant what matters is can they gin up a good story out of like the experience right But I don't actually care about if that's what happened in Ireland back in, you know, 1870, right? I care that it was a really funny story. And there are some things where truth really does matter, right? When we're talking about histories, but not necessarily when we're talking about just entertaining stories. Um, that doesn't bother me about Johnny. What bothers me about Johnny is just kind of sitting with the fact that he, he has, he places so little value on himself and other people.
4: Yeah. And that's why I ended up with more compassion for him at the end after yeah. I read the letters because I'm like, okay, I see now why you place so little value on yourself and others, right? You can understand him a bit more at the end. I think.
3: It still doesn't make him easy to sit with.
4: No, it really doesn't. It You're was spending really, a lot of
3: pages. You're spending yeah. a lot of pages with this person. And you know, I, I feel like I'm involved in it. And been, like I said, I've I've read it before. All right. Um, and I absolutely believe that hurt people hurt people
4: but it doesn't make the hurt. Okay. And it doesn't make it pleasant to read.
3: That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's
2: right. Yeah. Again, I, I think for myself, I'm really, I'm really torn because I absolutely agree um, wholeheartedly with everything that's been said Johnny. And I don't know that I would have enjoyed this book if he hadn't been.
3: Yeah. I also um, think there's something really important about the spatiality that Stacey was discussing with Johnny in contrast with the house and its environs, mm-hmm. right? Like, I think that the juxtaposition of Johnny's spaces um, with the, the sort of purported spaces of where the house is in its environs, I think that kind of matters too, to the story. And that that's sort of an argument for not leaving for not leaving him out, whether or not we should have spent as much time as we did with him is 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 itself an, an editorial question. Like, there's a, a between point between letting him have as much space as he has in the novel, uh, versus reducing that role somewhat, versus sort of taking him out entirely, right? And I, you know, I do think that there are legitimate reasons for doing any of the above.
2: You know, it's yeah. So. I I oh, I was just going to say that I think that. Um, Yeah, I know that we spend a lot of time on him. And I know that there are parts of the story where I was like, really, do I need to hear what potential sex act you had with your one night stand again? Um, but I found myself frustrated with the author in those moments more than anything. I felt like it's important that we, I guess, at some point realize that Johnny, I, I get that Johnny's not reliable. Um, I didn't need him to be quite so... So masculine and misogynistic, to also be unreliable and at times unlikable, Um, but I also just couldn't give up on the guy. I think, and I think that that really I was hungering for. I would have, you know, I would love in some world where we hear more from Karen, we hear more from. You know, um, is a Daisy. We hear more from the best friend. We hear more from the girls and the women and Thumper and around all of these characters. In some perfect world, that's for me the the other book, the other story. Um, And I was at least willing to stick with it in the sense that I was like, okay, this is this is this scarred person, as Aubrey puts it. And how much of his descent is of his own making, of his life, of his experiences. Ooh, And how much of it is attached to his Zapano's work and the Davidson report, all of that. So I think that I kept kind of going back to what if, what if he would have gotten through this much differently if he hadn't opened that trunk? and for that i was willing to spend pretty much every moment that we did with johnny
0: (laughs) so i was thinking about how i um even before i moved to los angeles think of this as a very los angeles book you know and i think Zenya goes right back to what you said in the very beginning about uh, los angeles as a physical space you know and I think, you know, Johnny in some ways really represents also the city in the 80s and 90s, you know, um, particularly Hollywood, <laughs> you know, that neighborhood. Um, those are the things that were happening during the time. I feel like in some ways he's he's that time capsule. The other thing, you know, really gets me thinking about is, um, you know, who in this novel really has interaction with this monster, you know, because Carrie really doesn't have that much interaction with the monster. Um, but Johnny does. Zampano does. Davidson does, you know? Um, so what is the monster? Um, why does, you know, why does um, Zampano? It's aliens. <laughs> it's aliens yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, is Danielski thinking about toxic masculinity even at this point, 20 years ago? That's an interesting question. Um, Is he thinking like, why does Zampano want to to erase the Minotaur from the script? You know, why does Johnny want to keep some of it in there? You know, what is it about the, the legend of the Minotaur that is important in House of Leaves? You know, those are the things I think that I, that I'm thinking about. Like what, What was going on in Los Angeles at the time and what kind of monsters were running around the city? You know,
4: that's an interesting question because I, I started the book believing there was a monster. And by the end of the book, I no longer believed that there was a monster at all in terms of a malevolent, Mm -hmm. you know, being, but asking what kinds of monsters were running around in the real world at the time is a really interesting question. And
0: what, what might the monster have been? So that's always the question in horror movies. It, not always, but, you know, a lot of the times, like, what's the real horror, you know? Is it, you know, some unknown monster? or Like, you think about aliens, right? Who's the, the real monster in aliens, right? It's the corporation. The colonialists? <laughs> <It's> the colonialists, <laughs> The corporation, right? yeah, exactly. You know, I think, you know, in thinking about monsters, that's how you think about what are the forces in the world that are good and bad and... In between and complex and tied together.
2: I know
1: we're talking about House of Leaves, but I'm just really curious because this is supposed to be, according to a lot of people, the scariest book ever written. <laughs> I would love to know what is the scariest book you guys think that you've ever read. Oh, that's oh awful.
0: Lord. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> hmm. I was really scared the first time I read this book. And again, I think it's because. Uh, I let it really get into my head and think about, uh, you know, that whole idea of are we in a matrix and what is real and that fear of change. And I think as an older person, I'm much less afraid of change and uncertainty than I was um, in part, I think, because things I'm studying. But when I read this, I would have said it was the scariest book I had read to that point. Since then, I have to think.
1: For me, it would actually be The Lovely Bones, which is technically not a horror book. Yeah,
0: that's, that's, but that book was so
1: disturbing to me that I finished it and I immediately gave it away because I didn't even want it in my house. I was like, ooh, time to, time to smudge.
3: (laughs) Like,
4: yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't read that, but I saw the film and, um, I'm sure it was a different experience than reading the book, but yeah, that was really, really scary.
0: I have to say, um, I don't think I have ever read that because I knew it would really disturb me. And I've never seen the film because I knew it would really disturb me.
4: I have maybe kind of a silly answer. I don't know if it's silly. It's just that I've not read much horror at all, right? Because I am a big scaredy cat. Um, But I think the things that scare me most are not stories about, you know, monsters or aliens or ghosts, but they're stories about what humans are capable of doing to other humans. And so I think it might be Misery by Stephen King, like the level of just sort of like the level of torture and, um, and psychosis. Like, I remember that book deeply disturbing me for a very long time. And then the movie adaptation is also brilliantly terrifying with Kathy Bates. She's absolutely, absolutely nightmare material.
3: <laughs> I'm over here having, feelings because of the lovely bones. Um, oh, so many feelings. Okay. So boy, scariest, um, you know, um, Lord of the Flies scarred me for life. Absolutely scarred me for life. Um,
4: it's a good one though. Oh, it's so good.
3: Yeah. And I think one of the things that's kind of interesting for, for me in listening to this conversation is how, how like our beliefs about like what's real and what's not real and what's a monster and what's not a monster. Cause I don't know if Aubrey remembers our conversation uh, many, many moons ago um, about a, a pedophile and the willingness to describe this person as a monster and how I was just like, I don't believe in, I do believe in monsters. And I also believe that everybody can be monstrous, right? Like there's just, a you know, and so that movie's terrible. I, I don't know if anybody has actually ever read The Exorcist book by William Blatty. It's a terrifying book, absolutely terrifying. Um, if you want to be scared during spooky season, uh, the movie is, is very scary as well. Um, but the, the book is, oh, gee, scary. But Lord of the Flies for me, that's one that kept me awake for a long time. There's a short story that, that Danielowski's book reminds me of really going back in the sort of horror tradition um, a long ways in terms of horror literature. Um, and it's, a, it's by um, Arthur Machen called The Great God Pan. Um, that's a book that kept me up.
4: Ooh, I have another one, too. It's actually a short story that was written also by Stephen King, but under the name Richard Bachman. He, he had a pen name at the time. It's called The Long Walk. Mm -hmm. and that that book kept me up and has stayed with me for like 30 years that book terrified me
0: you know now that we're into this um Shirley Jackson's We've Always Lived in the Castle that kept me up
3: I haven't read that yet
0: god she was such a good writer yeah
3: you know uh in terms of books that um were so unsettling Beloved right Toni Morrison's Beloved is a is a very um, unsettling and often very frightening book. And again, getting back to this whole thing of we don't actually need supernatural monsters. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm.
4: that's the thing. I think that our monsters are of our own of our own creation. Um, and it gets me to. I, I frequently am thinking about what you just said, Lisa, about how we can all be monstrous. It. I'm a little bit of like a World War II and World War II history buff to some degree and I think a lot about what happened after World war ii in an attempt to identify like who were the evil people and hold them accountable for evil when when evil is not a supernatural power it is something that, all humans are capable of under certain circumstances and people were capable of and acted in evil ways across the spectrum. It doesn't matter what side of the war you were on and how we as humans feel the need to really clearly define it and, and put it in a cage so that we can say it is separate from us when really it's inside of us and we see that with all of the psychological experiments that were done in the 60s and 70s as well and I that's something that sticks with me a lot is this concept of um, us needing to identify a thing outside of ourselves that is evil so that we can say that it's not part of us so that's interesting
0: because um at no point in reading house of leaves do I think whatever the labyrinth is or whatever Uh, the monster that Johnny has, like, I don't think of that as evil. Me either. Um, Terrifying to the characters, but not evil.
4: And it also depends too, like, do you think it's a being or do you think it's in, it's in our psyches, you know? Mm -hmm.
1: Because also all that's really necessary for something to be very scary is for it to be unknown and, you know, and, and we don't know what it is like that. That'll
2: do it. Mm-hmm. Especially if it's in your house. Oh yes, the monster's calling gonna... from
3: inside the house.
2: Right, right. And I was just going to add to that, just to go, you know, uh that there's the unknowingness. But I think also, especially when we think of the Davidson family, the lack of agency. Like you don't know what it is, and therefore you can't do anything about it. And that, of course, circles us back to some of that those notions of measuring tapes and things like that. But I think that that. For me is I think where I so appreciate what you were saying, Aubrey, about, you know, is, is toxic masculinity actually explored in this? And, and if it wasn't consciously, there was definitely something, you know, making Davidson go back for the fifth, you know, the fifth visit and it just feels like it's the tension of all these things you don't know what it is you want agency over it your masculinity is going to step in and make sure that you i don't know um but i think for me um so i i i, I was into horror movies and stuff when i was young like well into my 20s probably even kind of early 30s um i uh but i as i've gotten older i i think because I know that terrible people can do really terrible things. Um, I'm just not particularly interested in, in spending too much time um, in certain genres. I love horror um, so much. But now I'm a little more inclined because Lisa makes some of this sound much more fun. <laughs> I think I lost my
3: sense of fun around some of it too. So may, may I ask you a question, Stacey? Yeah. Is, is the Scottish play horror Oh gosh, that's such a great question. Thank you for
2: asking it that way. <laughs> Since as a theater person, I don't dare inside a building say the actual name. Um, gosh, you know what? I've never I thought got of your it back,
3: before. girlfriend. Got your back.
2: I and I love it and I love it. And and yeah. In fact, there's a really great audible version of a <laughs> of a, of a prose version. So perhaps we can say uh, that that is sort of a novelized version of the story of Macbeth and it's read by John Cummings um, and it's terrific and it's haunting. Definitely. That's psychological. And I think that that's it. I think that I probably have a slightly higher tolerance, but also the things that scare me are the things that are connect deeply connected to superstition and, the psychology of one losing ground.
3: (laughs) I will say um, Patrick Stewart version um, uh, that I just recently watched on Amazon, the witches are absolutely terrifying, right? They move in this very odd way, which is probably the reason why the ring is still a thing, even though nobody younger than us remembers what uh, what VCRs are. Um, and that has no meaning for them. Uh, so the really creepy way that little girl jerks around is enough to haunt your imagination for a long time. But the that version is like I, you know, for me, it's always been one of my favorite plays because it's got witches in it, y'all. Um, but you know, mm-hmm. do they actually need to have supernatural powers? Do they need to be in any way real witches, or you know, are they just playing? Are they just playing on his weaknesses? Mm-hmm. Right and of of, of ambition and uh, and a willingness to do whatever to get what he thinks he deserves, um, and to me that's the best kind of horror. Do not get me wrong; I'm more than happy to watch a movie with someone in a foam rubber suit. Right, right. <laughs> I am more than happy. Like Andy will put something on the TV that he's like, "You won't believe how trashy this is," and I'll be like, "Oh, I've seen that. It's awesome,"
0: and I will watch it. <laughs> I've seen that.
3: <laughs> And of course I'll sit and watch it again. Yeah. Um, but to me, that's, that's that interesting thing is the whole, like, you know, uh, this, the, what you said about us wanting to put it in a box. Right. Because so much of our portions of, you know, the the quotes attributed to Neil Gaiman, I'm not sure if it's right or not. Um, the whole idea of like fairy tales aren't, aren't there to convince us that dragons aren't real. They're there to convince us that dragons can be slain. Mm-hmm. Right, that the better part, the better a- angels of our nature, right, can be used to overcome the parts of us that are, that are less um, pleasant to spend time with, you know, to sort of put it euphemistically, right, that we can overcome, right, either political evil, which is really what we're talking about in Jen's case, in talking about the, you know, the individual actions of, of a war crime of an individual soldier versus the political evil of something like an yeah. organized genocide, All of those things are very real and very much a part of us, but our stories are there to try to help us appeal to something that's better than that. And that can help us try to combat that.
2: No, there's so much about that. That's, that's really terrific. And, and I think so spot on. I think that, and, and I, and I don't want to lose sight of the play and the fun of some of these things that when you can safely allow yourself to, yeah, to participate and take these stories in, I, as somebody who has lived with and continues to really work hard at moving through and past a phobia, I will say that it, that I realize in like when I see young people, like littles, I realize like, oh, like things are going really like pretty solidly for you because you're not nearly as scared of these things because you're okay with being startled you're okay with like the bump in the night or the boo or the whatever um and i am like oh gosh yeah i'm sort of missing a little bit fun and um and so i love I, I i i will revisit some of this um both this book and how i think about it but i think also when we talk about this, this play is such a great example for me selfishly that um, because I'm utterly convinced that the language used in the play for the witches actually conjures something so <laughs> so I love I also love this notion like it doesn't have to be that for it still to be all the things that it is and yeah the the kind of fun of like ooh, what if the wall just disappeared and suddenly you're in this house and by yourself you don't know where your husband is, Ooh, that's scary and not terrifying. Why
4: did they stay in the house? Why would they stay? If this is real,
2: why, why would does they anybody
4: stay, the stay? Why does anybody No, but like stays? in a very, in like, I, I'm being extremely literal right now. I'm being yeah. extremely mm-hmm. literal. Like if we moved into a house and there was like a door and it was locked and we like couldn't get into it, didn't know where it goes. Okay, that's one thing. And you end up discovering a corridor later. But, like, the door didn't exist when they moved in. And I would piece out of there, like, in four seconds. I would this be like,
3: nope. Not a home inspection report. <laughs> <laughs> I would be
4: like, this was not there before. We are going to stay in an Airbnb, y'all. We are not coming back to this house. We are selling it right now.
3: Eddie, Eddie Murphy has this unbelievably funny riff on this where he's like, white families are always like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, we're going to stay. Black families. <laughs> get out go oh, this is a lovely house lovely house get out too bad we can't stay <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm That's hilarious. he's very very funny in his stand-up if you don't mind the swears which i obviously don't because i use all the swears um yeah but it's, it's a reasonable observation i was actually thinking about that when stacy was talking about this because i actually think this would be much more terrifying if this had been a house that they'd been in for a while <laughs> right? The narrative always goes, you move into a new house and you start to get to know the house. And one of the things that you understand is that, you know, there's a ghost in the house or this in the house or a presence in the house. Or the, And I'm like, what if I walked out my door of this little workroom and all of a sudden there's a, a new hallway in a house that I've lived in for 15 years?
4: Yeah. That's actually way more scary to me because it's a space you feel, you know, and you trust, and you have a sense of security and it is your home, right? Like there's, there's something about feeling safe in a, in our physical and psychological space that you don't expect when you move into someplace new. You're going to make it into a home. You're going to feel safe there over time. Right. But yeah, Lisa, that would scare the bejesus out of me. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I mean, because you make a place into a home by dwelling in it, right? You get yeah. to know it. So like the, I understand why it, it happens the way that it happens in so many of our narratives is that moving in and of itself is is a nightmare in in many respects, right? Like it's disorienting. You don't know I need, mean? I mean, like there's comes a point in every move where you're just like, oh, for the love of God, I just want to know where I put the pizza cutter and <laughs> and where the grocery store is. <laughs> yeah. Right? Why is this so hard? And it, it takes so much longer than you want it to to become settled and to sort of be in a place where you're craving. Uh, a place where you can settle and dwell, which is exactly where the Navidsons are, right? We're exactly where that family is, right? Because they're looking, like he'd been traveling, they were looking to find a place where they could settle, and this isn't it, right? And it's so much more than you're just feeling of being dislocated because you've had to move from one space to another. But it's a very different thing if all of a sudden it were to happen in a house that you had occupied for a really long time. Because then you, I mean, it's really one of those things where you're like, am I going, am I becoming delusional? If this is really happening, was this always happening and I just failed to perceive it? Is there something new here that's doing this? Or have I been living chock-a-block with this for 15 years and now all of a sudden it's decided to start
0: F with me? Or you've just noticed it, yeah. Um, Or you've upset it. Or it's reacting to something,
2: yeah. I was actually glad that they ultimately didn't sell the house. Cause I was like, why sell it and pass it on to somebody else? <laughs>
0: right? It was like,
2: they, the, 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 the real estate agent was like, oh yeah people only stay like a year or two I'm like yeah they stay a year or two and they don't tell you about the closet that just shows up
4: <laughs>
0: well some of the people have I'm disappeared like, okay, people
2: fencing it off and like taking it off
0: but you're locket. like but what
4: about my down payment you're like what I've now sunk hundreds of thousands of dollars in down payment into this place that I can't legitimately sell
2: well yeah so I was kind of kind of grateful that you know he had a th- thriving career and probably enough money <laughs> that they didn't have to put it on the market. So I was like, thank you very much for your white privilege. In this case, <laughs> kept this house off the market. And I don't know why you would keep it. And yeah. Although I didn't feel like they had been there very long. Like you were saying, Lisa, like, I didn't feel like they'd been there very long. And I felt like they only stayed. I, I just, I was like, yeah. And then he goes back and then she goes.
0: Back. Well, and she saves him and she saves the day because, you know, that's what Final girls do.
3: <laughs> That's true. The um the um, the original Amityville Horror does a really nice job of this. Um, and it's kind of a trove. And, and I'm going to admit, to, uh, actually, not nobody in this conversation has any respect for my uh, entertainment consumption choices. So I'll just go ahead. <laughs> I've, ad- I've admitted to the Sasquatch podcasts and the foam rubber suits. I might as well admit to the ghost hunter uh, television viewing. Is just you know the financial aspect for many people is that mm-hmm. you've sunk a lot. Moving is very expensive. And it's one of the things that the Amityville Horror, does as well is that the entity that's in that house, um, makes money disappear. Right. So they're already financially very strained and then they, that gets added to it and it adds another layer of terrifying thing. I will admit that if this were happening to me, I'd probably stay just to see. <laughs> I know. Are you curious? I am, the, I am the cat that died because they couldn't keep their face, <laughs> whatever dangerous thing. I'm, and like I and like to me, I would just like, what's going on? In love?
4: No, I'm like dragging Lisa out by her arm. I'm like, get
3: out. Like it's not worth it. <laughs> this is a mystery, right? I mean, who doesn't love a mystery? And I think that's actually for me one of the appeals of this book that I think for many of the people who find the stuff distracting is that for me it's like a jigsaw puzzle. Oh yeah. It's and that's that's puzzle. like part of the fun for me mm-hmm. is like Oh, how does this fit with that? How does this fit with that? Instead of having it be so fragmented, um, that's actually part of the fun for me. But I could see for people who aren't as dysfunctionally, irrationally attracted to puzzles and mysteries as I am, that it would be like, why am I reading this? Especially for as long as it is.
0: Well, says the person who also read the five familiar novels. So, (laughs) did you read the familiar novels? So, yeah, talk about long. Okay, we're totally over time, so I'm going to try to get us out, even though there's so many different things we could talk about, because there's so many things we didn't even mention. We didn't even mention the photograph in Delisle and how it's based on a real photograph that actually won the Pulitzer in 1994. Everybody who is listening should go and and, uh, look some of these things up. Um, So I guess the question is, um, did you like the book? so Lisa is nodding. Yes. Well,
3: obviously, yes.
0: Yes, I like the book, and it's okay if you didn't. I'll
2: say that I am really glad that I read it. I I didn't not like it. I'm not close to the love it that I know that you you have for it, Aubrey. A- and I would recommend it. I would actually for for people who are willing to take the the journey and explore it. Um, and and I will also say that I I thought too that I was going to like read this and give it because I was like, I don't know if I want when I started thinking it was going to be really, really, really scary. And now I'm like, Oh, I kind of want to go back. I want to uh, revisit certain sections and especially in light of this conversation. So how's that for no, no, or yes, not maybe. Not everything is a (laughs) no or a yes. Mm -hmm. That's okay.
4: I, I will confess to not, not really, I didn't love it. I I didn't hate it. Like, it seems like we were talking before we started recording that that this book seems to be like cilantro. You either really love it or you really hate it. And it tastes like death, right? I didn't have that experience. I definitely did not love it. There were parts of it that I enjoyed or thought were interesting. Overall, uh, it was a bit of a slog for me to get through. I will confess to actually liking it more after we have all talked about it, though. Like, I enjoyed this conversation about it more than I enjoyed reading it on my own. And I think I have uh, you know, a different perspective on, on some of the sections. And I actually am, I, I have more respect for it. I think now after talking through it with everybody than I had before.
1: Yeah. For me, I, I love that it exists. I, I think that it, it should exist. I love that it's here in the world. I don't particularly enjoy the amount of work that this took. Um, it was it was laborious for me i like i like you know the whole sumptuous experience of disappearing into a book like i you know like i don't i don't want to be doing acrobatics so it really it really wasn't it really wasn't my cup of tea but i completely appreciate it for what it is
0: well so the i'm wearing a house of leaves t-shirt so um i think we all know where i stand um so stacy already answered you know who should read it well that she would recommend it who should read it?
4: I mean, I think I would say that if um, if a person told me that they're really interested in stories that have lots of intersecting plot lines and various narrators, narrators and, and maybe even puzzles and things for them to figure out within within a text if that's the kind of story that someone likes then I think I would recommend it to them that you know it requires work on behalf of the reader in a way that even other difficult texts that I've read don't Like, um, there are difficult texts, and then there's a text where you actually are like, you know, I had like a pencil, and I'm like trying to like figure stuff out as I'm going. So I think if someone's interested in that kind of an experience, and I actually think of it more as like an experience, rather than simply reading a story, um, I would recommend it to them. Yeah.
0: Anybody else? I think Jen pretty much nailed it. My answer will be, I wish all of my friends would read it, because I always want to talk about it. Like, always. (laughs)
4: so well maybe the more you and I talk about it Aubrey the more I will
0: the more. You I will and you never it. have to to love it or even like it it just you know when I talk about how like I just watched the first episode of Midnight Mass and I'm like oh there's a black trunk <laughs> just, always beware a black trunk I'm just saying <laughs> yeah I might be a weirdo um for good it's all right um so, you know, we always ask this question and I, you know, I think it's going to be hard in this. So, um, did you have a favorite line, passage, or piece that stood out to you as you were reading or thinking back on it? I don't think this is an easy book to do this with. Yeah, I, I no, agree with
3: you, card. but I love the little coded letter. Yeah. Like, it just makes me unbelievably happy. It's like, oh, I did a puzzle book in the book.
0: Yes, I enjoyed that too, even though it's a, it's kind of a traumatic letter I like that. I actually really like the part where um, in exploration number five, uh, Davidson is um, realizing that he has to go up. And so the words turn and then they climb. So you have to go from the bottom up. Once you figure it out, you're like, oh, we're climbing. And I, I, you know, I liked the playfulness of that and how the next time you saw that it was automatic to read it that way, Um, how quickly your brain sort of changes but I have so I have so many favorite things about this book. So well,
3: but the thing that's so cool about that is that that sort of stuff makes the book a spatial experience itself. There are a lot of times when you get to the pages that only have like a sentence or like a word on them, and you get to go fast. That you're like, "Wee!" I'm like those are some of my favorites too, because this is a very big book.
4: Yeah. It is. Yeah, it was definitely pleasant to be like, oh, there's 20 pages done in like two minutes. That was amazing. I had a part that it, I wouldn't call it a favorite, but I, I had a part where I literally was like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. And it's, <laughs> it's really stuck out, which is when Davidson is in the labyrinth and he's floating and he's burning the pages of the
0: book, The House of Leaves that is bigger than the book that we're reading. And I'm
4: just like, are you, are you kidding me right now? I was just like, how am I even intended to make sense of this? Because uh, there is no making sense of it. So,
0: okay.
1: Anybody else have a... I, I can go really quick. I, I really don't. Like I found, I found, and maybe it's just that my brain works. I found it really difficult to retain things from like one page to the next. Mm, yeah. So it, it it really became like a, a very um like a big mishmash for me. And like unfortunately, there really was no one moment that I was like, ooh.
2: Yeah, I I was I I agree. Um, I will say that there are there are a couple of things that I, I kind of flagged. Um I did like Tom. I like the the transcript of you know him call you know calling whatever yeah, he was a Mr. Tent. Tent. Monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So there's all of that. Um, my other thing that um, there's a moment. Uh, it's, it's towards the end, and and um, it, there's the long section where it's mostly Johnny talking about his experiences, and he's run into the woman from previously, and his, and her her boyfriend. And the font changes from on page five from five seventeen on five eighteen. The font actually is different just subtly different from the rest. And I, I believe that it's actually a page that Navidson wrote that winds up inside of Johnny's narration because it doesn't 100% make fluid sense. If you move from Johnny's story and then this page, and then suddenly you're talking about a doctor and a child. So I'm, I, that's what I have decided is that page is actually Davidson. that somehow it wound up in this. And um, therefore I have chosen that as one of my
0: favorite little stories. Holy cats. Talk about Stacey being your ideal reader. <laughs> Woman paying attention. There is really something cinematic. I mean, you know, I think he really is getting it. So cinematic storytelling in this thank you my friends for doing this thank you Zanya. it was so nice to meet you and um uh, next time we'll have to do a book that you're going to really like (laughs) no it was it was it was a great experience I I and so thank you Lisa and Stacy and Jen I really appreciate it and a big thank you to our listeners. We hope that you, our fellow book lovers, enjoy this conversation. To find our whole suite of podcasts exploring governance, civics, and uh, what it means to be human today, search USC Bedrosian on your favorite podcast app. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our website, bedrosian.usc.edu slash And if you're reading along with us, I really hope you are. Our next book is Covered with Night by Nicole Eustis. It's another American history text from a history professor at NYU. The book is getting at all is really getting a lot of accolades. And in today's, you know, let's not look at the past world, you know, I think it's important to double down. And so we're exploring stories that many people don't know about our country and how these stories, um, these things that happened have ripples and affect us all today. So. How can we do better going forward? How can we make better policy going forward if we don't understand how we got here today? So that's Covered with Night by Nicole Eustis. And again, a link will be on our website. So thanks again to our guests, to my co-producer, Jonathan Schwartz, and a huge thanks to our beloved sound supervisors, the brothers Hedden, Corey, and Ryan, who really do so much work to make this sound good. Thank you so much. Signing off, I'm Aubrey Hicks coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Until next time, be good to yourself, your neighbors, your community, friends, strangers. Just be good. Thank you.